Where are we on the um, F-bomb scale? <laughs> drop them. Let's see how it goes. Are we allowed okay. to do that? Are we actually I mean, allowed to drop F-bombs? It, well, it, it, absolutely. It just changes the designation on things like the uh, um, iTunes uh, podcast. May it contain explicit language? I hope it does. Yeah, you know, there's nothing better than stringing together a unique string of expletives and, you know, making it a sentence. I like it. It's good. Welcome to Transpose, a podcast. In every episode, industry visionaries bring their unique talents and insights into the transformation zone and transpose the ethos of an iconic brand, product, or experience into another market. Thought leaders, innovators, and creatives travel far into the future, unleashing disruption and a little humor along the way. Welcome to Transpose. I'm Justin Dobb, and with me, as always, is my co-host and fellow technologist, innovator, and future caster, Anju Ahuja. Our guest today spent decades driving growth and innovation in the gaming industry, but today we're going to talk about what's next. Stay tuned. Do, do you guys want to warm up, chit-chat a little bit more? Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, Justin, good to meet yeah. you. Yeah, nice to meet you. Uh, you know, I've heard a lot about you, most of it really good. <laughs> Well, that's the boring part. Tell me, tell me the stuff that's that's naughty, not nice. All right, so I'm going to kick off. It is my pleasure to introduce Sean Layden, former chairman of Sony Interactive Entertainment Worldwide Studios. You've also held other important leadership positions within Sony and the games industry, Sean. And as you and I both know, you have a huge fan base, and I count myself as a <sighs> member of that club. But if you allow me, I'm going to do something a little non-traditional. I'm going to introduce you with just a string of words that kind of remind me of what you strike me as just in terms of your character. Um, so here we go. And feel mostly free to- good. Mostly, mostly good. good. <laughs> yeah. I took the expletives out of these. So these are just the good things. It's, it's the sweet list. Um, <laughs> What's up? the whole flavor then? Luminary, unflappable, content connoisseur, certainly when it comes to games, but beyond that as well. Humanitarian, I love that you are a voluntary traffic controller for your local grocer so he can stay in business and you can all shop during a pandemic safely. Thought provoker, and one of my personal favorites in life is kind. And that really struck me about you because it's, it's rare to come across someone as accomplished as you and knowing that person, he or she, doesn't expect to receive back as much as they give. And that's always just struck me about your interactions with everyone. So first and foremost, thank you for joining us. This is our first go at this. We hope it's fun. Um, and before we launch into it, I was hoping in your own words, you could tell us your origin story and you know, 15 floors on an elevator. What would you tell a stranger you met in the lobby about the who of you? You're on. Well, I asked him to stand six feet away from me in the elevator. That's good probably start. a good move. Yeah. Um, well, thank you, Anji. That's that's extremely gracious and generous and um, largely undeserved, I'm afraid. But I'll I'll, I'll take it anyway. Uh, it's great to be on your show. Uh, thank you for the invitation. Um, you guys are, are are fascinating to speak with, and I'm sure I'm sure this this time will go by go by quickly because of that. Um, I've just recently dismounted from my 32 year career with Sony, which I began back in the late 80s directly in Tokyo, where I joined the company uh, in a corporate communications responsibility. After a few years of that, I got 
scooped out of the PR department and made secretary to the founder and chairman of Sony, Akio Morita. Wow. Um, well, one of 14 secretaries, let's be honest. You know, I was just one of the guys. And then um, thereafter, when Morita-san had to sadly resign because he had a stroke, it was debilitating for him, I left the corporate world and bounced over to PlayStation this new upcoming activity which Sony was going to enter into, which frankly, back in 1994, a lot of people inside Sony thought it was sort of a fool's errand to try to get in the marketplace against the titans of Nintendo and Sega. And how was Sony going to be successful in that? But the company decided to go forward with it. I jumped in it pretty early. I think I joined in 1996. And yeah, it was it was a crazy time. You know, Sony had just entered the gaming business. I remember the president of the company at the time, a guy named Terry Tokunaka, whom I had met earlier when we were both working on the acquisition of Columbia Pictures back in 99, or 89, excuse me. Uh, he asked me, hey, do you want to come join the game company? I said, but Tokunaka-san, I don't know anything about video games. And his rejoinder was, neither do we. So this is the best time to get in. <laughs> okay, well, great. What am I going to do? He's gonna, You're going to be a producer. Okay, what does that mean? And we all just kind of learned as we went along. And Sony was an improbable champion in the gaming sector. But Champion, it did. It effectively pushed Sega out of the business over about five years. Um, Nintendo's still in. Microsoft's come in laterally. And now those are the two what we call platforms in the gaming industry, PlayStation, Xbox, and the Nintendo consoles. And Sony has done, I think, pretty well. The, the gaming business itself inside Sony Corp a couple of years ago became the biggest part of Sony. Yep. The biggest part. Bigger than TVs and audio. And more profitable than even the finance company, which is a tough one to take the profitability crown from because yeah. they're all upside in that business. Um, but PlayStation is the leading revenue source for Sony Corp. It's over $20 billion in revenue. It's a leading profitable uh, business for Sony Corp. So a business that 25 years ago, you know, people were telling us when we started the company, it's like, hey, you know, lease the building, lease the desk, lease the <laughs> pencils if you can. You guys aren't going to be in this business that long. Turned out to pretty much become Sony Corp. And I was with the company through PlayStation 1, 2, 3, 4. And on the precipice of PlayStation 5, you know, launching a new platform, as we call it in the yep. business, a new generation, as it were, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a special kind of dance and prep. And it you know, takes years off your life trying to get ready to do that. And looking at the beginning of PS5, and I'd already greenlit a number of games to come to fruition in time for that launch, I just felt uh, launching the new platform is probably best left to younger women and men. <laughs> to uh, have, yeah. have, have that experience and having done it, including the virtual reality and, and, and handheld platforms, I think I did it seven times. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, I, thought, I thought it was time for me to go on sabbatical. And um, so I yeah. took a leave from the company. And just as I was about to re-enter into some new adventures, um, we had the coronavirus. So my sabbatical got extended yeah. and um, I'm still there. And here I am in San Francisco, hoping that uh, my name comes up on a vaccine list before the year 2022. <laughs> yeah, so one of the things you've done during your sabbatical was write this amazing article. And, and it touches on the pandemic and on how it's a chance for us to divorce ourselves from really tired conventions of yesterday and mm -hmm. focus a lot mm -hmm. more on positive disruption of you know, our future society, industry. Can you elaborate on that? Because it was a beautiful piece. It was actually poetic um, and, and it was short and sweet. And I feel like there's a whole lot more there. Yeah. Um, well, th well, thanks for that, Andrew. Yeah, that came out in uh, People and Strategy. It's a journal that's uh, kind of like a business journal. And, uh, you know, we're looking at what is it about the pandemic life? And, you know, people talk about getting back to normal. And my, my contention is there's no going back. Right. We're never going back to 2019. All those things which happened until the coronavirus, 
that world is sealed in amber. It can be examined, it can be you know, thought about, um, but it cannot be returned to. And as we come out of this, I think while 2020 and the pandemic has been hard on a lot of people, it has been tragic for the families who have been touched by, by deaths in the family from this virus, I think we also need to look at this time when the whole world's been pressed pause and to think, when we come out of this, where are we going to go? Do not squander this opportunity to make meaningful change in your life. Things that have stopped, consider restarting or not restarting. I think, you know, just on, on, on a very simple scale, I don't think anyone is anchoring to get back to four hours commute two ways to an office somewhere. You know, no one's thinking, oh, I miss spending two hours in the morning on the freeway. No one is saying that. So we've all learned to work from home. And now the, the great professor Scott Galloway, he made the point, which I think is totally trenchant, is that we haven't changed so much as we've just accelerated. These changes yeah. were already happening. You know, companies in different sectors were already working from home. You have remote workers, and, and we're always learning to do that. We just didn't push the entire company into that channel. But we have done now. And people are learning that um, this is maybe a better way to get their work-life balance by, uh, by working remotely and spending less time commuting and, and less time in terrible staff meetings and being more concentrated in their work activity and, and, and in their output. So I think this is the time for us to look at that, to look at uh, you know, some of the old conventions of the office. Um, yep. Do we continue to, to, to have the Wednesday stand-up meeting or can it just be an email? Do we need to, we need to do things that way? I think there's a huge amount of change around that. There's a huge amount of change around the roles that fathers and mothers play and, and how they balance their work and their life and their children and all those things. Some of it's been terribly hard. But I think it also gives the opportunity to do things in a more dynamic way of change coming out of this. I hope people will take that opportunity. Yeah, I think the interesting thing that you kind of just hinted at was what I think we did get out of this already is it's not the worst thing in the world to be interrupted by your child if you're on a call or a meeting. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. Which it can only really be better for the children long term, I think. Mm-hmm. The other thing I, I was thinking while you, were, while you were talking was it reminded me of at the end of World War II, the, the head of the National Science mm-hmm. Foundation, Vannevar Bush, wrote an article called How We May Think, where he basically outlined the entire kind of information uh, technology roadmap for that's still playing out today. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he was like, we've got we're just coming out of the war. We have all this scientific knowledge and all of this infrastructure built. For the war effort, how do we change that now? Because again, mm-hmm. you know, we're not going back to that. So uh, I, I think your point is is well taken. That you know, this is one of those moments where we can set a vision, right? If we take the time to absolutely codify it. I was just gonna say it, it is momentous, like the Great Depression, like World War II. It is momentous in ways that the recession of two thousand eight wasn't. There was a kind of a race back to normal. After that, after we dug ourselves out of the financial hole, because the, the structures around life weren't fundamentally shifted, just the structures around finance were, were obliterated. But uh, this pandemic has shaken everyone to the very, very, very core. And coming out of this, just like you say, after World War II, once you know women got into the workforce to help the war effort, they weren't going to get out. So we found ways to, you know, incorporate that kind of a landscape around employment and uh, and, and workers. And we're going to get the same thing here, too, coming out of this pandemic and how we how our structures will have changed uh, fundamentally. I'm also hoping this sort of shakes up our notion of what good curriculum actually looks like. Um, and mm-hmm. I say that for a couple of reasons. I mean, one, there's been a lot of pulling forward of technology, right, and, and into younger lives and using them in different ways. And I do think it's great that kids are witnessing parents having meetings and 
there's this fluidity in the home environment that is a wonderful thing to preserve. I would have thought, mm-hmm. this is all anecdotal, certainly haven't gone and validated this, but I would have thought that there would have been more empathy between parents and teachers that would have emerged during mm-hmm. this period. And instead I've heard mm-hmm. pretty much the opposite from both sides, friends of mine that are on both mm-hmm. sides. And you know, the truth mm-hmm. is there's been this expectation that children are just going to find a way to focus themselves in a completely different context and not want to play video games while they're in class. Yes, that's, that's and not what want kids to text. do. Right, exactly. And so you kind of think about it and, you know, the parents are complaining that the kids aren't getting a good online education. And the teachers are saying, I can see the reflection of a video game in your kids' classes. It's like, you know, I know you got to work full time, but there's some responsibility here. So I almost feel like if there was one takeaway for me, it's that education needs to be a lot more interactive, no matter how you deliver it, you know, distribute it, share it online or not, it needs to be much higher touch, much more engaging, maybe much more even allow the child to have iteration with what they're learning. So they're engaged because attention spans have gone to nil, right? I mean, it's just, it's a very strange time. Worse than a goldfish. Yeah. Are we that bad? I mean, I thought we were, I thought we were a little better than that. No, worse by a second or two. Oh, it's a good thing. I like my life aquatic. So (laughs) to that point, so Sean, you brought up uh, Professor Scott. Galloway, um, who has had a lot to say about higher education in this time. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to step forward in our agenda a little bit. I'm I'm just curious, what do you think that the education, you know, higher education could learn from the gaming industry? When you say higher, you mean post high school in a college? Yep. Well, I've been, I've been doing a a bit of talking, a bit of lecturing around uh, a couple of campuses in my latter years at PlayStation and my uh, and during my sabbatical period, you know, just trying to get people on the one hand just to understand the gaming industry. You know, the funny thing about gaming is that it went from this sort of niche activity which you wouldn't talk talk about in polite company. And if someone someone in a room said the words Tomb Raider, you'd saddle up next to them and go, Hey, did you just say Tomb Raider? Isn't that awesome? <laughs> um, but now we wear it on our shirts and we wear it on our Nikes and there's branding everywhere and People have normalized their relationships with gaming, and that's why it's become a $180 billion global business. Yeah, uh, The gaming industry grew over 20% during pandemic, with people in lockdown spending more time with games, spending more money on games. It's become the biggest entertainment medium in the world, bigger than movies, bigger than television, bigger than films, uh, the, the music. Um, kind of silently or secretly or unobservedly, it got to that place. And... That's why, you know, when I talk to people about the gaming industry, it's trying to demystify it and say that this is an honest to good industry, honest to God industry. And you may think you don't write code or you don't do digital art or you can't write a story and that's why you can't participate. And I say, but think about it. You know, there are sales departments, marketing departments, communications departments, everything that every other industry has, whether it's pharma, whether it's the automobile industry, uh, whether it's finance, they're all found in, 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 in the gaming industry now. It's now a player in the workplace as an aspirational destination for college students. And, you know, my job is to try to make that, make that apparent to most. What gaming can teach towards education is something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about over the last couple of years, because we do have ways through gaming, through, through game design, to pull people in, mm-hmm. to keep them focused, to help them problem solve. That's the great thing about playing games is it's just a succession of problem solves. How yeah. do you get from here to there, how do you open that gate and you solve and you fail and you get back up again and do it again? That's what I try to tell parents. We're worried about my kids spending too much time with video games. What you want them to sit there and watch cartoons all day, where they're just leaning back with their eyes kind of glazed over. At least with the game, they're learning persistence, they're learning problem solving, they're learning how to deal with failure, how to lose. 
and how to get back up again and do it. Yeah, and there's some critical thinking going on at all levels. I- I'm curious, you <laughs> mentioned music as well. Do you think in-game concerts, in-game shows, like the live shows, are going to fundamentally change the music industry? Because I feel like it will. Yeah, the music industry is, is always in constant flux, right? Whether it's you know some guys from Cupertino trying to convince music companies to give up their songs for 99 cents a pop, <laughs> or whether it's you know the idea where now musicians make more money off of live concerts and merchandise than they probably do off the sale of their music. So it's yeah. kind of changed that whole thing around. I mean, I'm old enough to remember back in the 70s where you had um, you know super groups like Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and Yes, who were saying things like, we're not going to tour anymore. We're just going to drop an album every year. Right. And, um, we're going to yeah. live in the studio. We can't do that anymore. Yeah, times have changed. Times have changed. So mm-hmm. maybe maybe we can, we can thank digital music for bringing our artists back on stages where we can see them. But of course, the coronavirus has like, <laughs> taken live music away from us now. Yeah. Probably, probably more than restaurants and bars or sporting events or opera. I just miss live concerts more than anything. But we see some people coming up with innovative answers to that, like having concerts inside a game like Fortnite. Mm-hmm. We see some people who are putting together platforms where they're doing online concerts on these crazy stages using like volumetric video captures. So you're getting a whole 360 uh, uh, experience um, up against these LED panels, which keep changing, which look look fairly cool. And I think mm-hmm. that will probably keep up. But there isn't electricity of being in the stadium or being yeah. in the concert hall or being in the bar sat next to the, a great piano player that cannot be replicated online. But I think online becomes a supplement to that for sure. Absolutely. You know, you brought up a lot about, you know, new distribution models and business models. I've actually been really impressed with the, with the gaming industry. There's kind of a million ways you can get a game on your console now, right? You can buy physical media. You can, <laughs> you can buy the, the one-off game. You can subscribe, um, <laughs> you know, to a back catalog. Uh, right. How did that come about? Um, well, it's just, it's just, it's a, diamond with many facets yeah so let's let's just take one about looking at like digital distribution where we can go back further i mean one of the innovations that playstation brought to video gaming for the first time uh in 1994 was shipping games on compact disc yep optical media up until that time the sega platforms and the nintendo platforms were all using flash rom where you would you know put on a cartridge you have to be done at a factory level you flash the rom and then you'd sell those now Putting on compact disc did a number of things. Number one, it brought down cost of goods by, you know, ninety percent. Yeah. Where, you know, flash flash ROM cartridges were probably six seven bucks a throw, blanks, and CDs are a dollar. So boom, there's that cost of goods go way down. And because they're just disc stamping instead of ROM flashing, the, the turnaround time to market was super fast. So you didn't have to buy a hundred thousand minimum units to begin your publishing of your game, you could just buy 10,000 and not have to, you know, all those stories about people digging holes in the desert to bury that ET game <laughs> after, <laughs> after, after, after it was so horrible. Um, but this, you could do smaller runs. So that allowed people to hedge their risk on putting a game out there because they didn't have to buy 100,000, you know, just to, just to start. You could buy 10,000, and if you, if you sold out, you could call Sony on a Thursday and have another 10,000 or 20,000 by next Tuesday. Yep. Because you just stamp it out of a stamping, uh, a stamping facility. So that changed the entire dynamics around the cost of entry into gaming. Of course, it allows a wider range of ideas. You could be more risky yep. because you knew that I'd, I'll, I'll only have to stamp like 10,000 and if it's a bad idea, then I'll, I'll find out pretty quick. 
Um, so that was the first iteration of changing the delivery dynamic in games. Laterally came, you know, can we make these games available digitally once we got you know, decent internet, decent, decent throughput and download speeds? And then that began. Now, the knockout effect of the digital revolution was that companies, well, for example, GameStop. So used games were, were a thing, right? You, you pay 60 bucks for a game, you go play it, you finish it, and then you'd sell it back to GameStop or Best Buy or whoever was doing it. Um, the digital revolution came along. And at the beginning, it was about 10% of the turnover came from digital sales. Now it's in excess of 50% for most platforms, which has totally ripped the heart out of uh, retailers who are enjoying the, uh, yeah. the full-on profitability of, of, of used sales. So that changed that dynamic. So, so brick and mortar took a hit with that as it became digital because there's no such thing as used digital. Then with PlayStation 4, the company came up with this technology called PlayStation Now, yep. which is a streaming gaming service. And really what the, the advantage of that was is that the other thing about gaming is that every time you have a new console, it means all the old games are unplayable for a host of technical reasons and, 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 and otherwise. But with PlayStation Now, you could have a PlayStation 4 and then get a PlayStation Now subscription and you could play PS3 games on your PlayStation 4 through streaming technology. Um, later on, they would put even PS4 games into that streaming service. And that was a way for people to you know, have access to a huge library where you could just dink around and, and, and try different games. Um, Microsoft has Game Pass now, where mm -hmm. they're putting their uh, library uh, into, in, into the cloud. Yep. And I think it's a good complement, but I don't think it's a replacement. Not yet, anyway. I mean, if you're really a hardcore gamer, you don't want your gaming experience to be subject to the vagaries of how good your ISP is or not. And you want to have local client on your console in your living room, particularly if you're trying to pull off, uh, you know, uh, amazing round of deathmatch on Call of Duty. Mm -hmm. I don't want to leave it to Comcast to decide whether I have good throughput or not. But over time, you know, issues around broadband speed should largely go away. And then we'll see what the future of cloud gaming is. And if in the, when you say cloud gaming, it's, there's two dimensions to that. One is just the delivery of the code of the gaming experience itself. The other dimension to that is if you were to rely completely on server-side CPU and GPU power, which will be orders of magnitude more powerful than your console in your living room, what kind of enhanced gaming experience could you actually deliver? Right. If you knew that you were writing against that kind of technology instead of you know home console technology, and then that could be super interesting. That really hasn't happened yet, but um, that's certainly the way this thing will develop over time. So. So that's a really good segue because you just brought up cloud gaming, right? And we read two really. You're talking about Stadia now. We, well, Stadia <laughs> and Amazon Game Maybe. Studio. I mean, you've always talked about how content <laughs> is hard. Content is just really hard. And it's also confusing when you have a business model that might conflict with your customers, right? Or your suppliers. Um, so talk a little bit about whether or not you saw that coming. And how, what do you think this implies for GeForce Now, right? Another great player in the space that's trying to do some mm -hmm. big, bold things. You know, I think people get a bit misguided when they use phrases like the Netflix of gaming. Mm -hmm. It's like, hey, you know, why don't you do the subscription service? Be the Netflix of gaming. Well, first of all, you guys, remember when Netflix started? That was the DVDs in an envelope that came to yep. your house. They just didn't show up on day one with a full-blown Netflix Originals uh, streaming service. Uh, they had to build up from there. And they didn't have their own content. Correct, because they were just relying on really old stuff. But it gave them subscriptions, memberships, um, then, then a war chest, and then the race is on for original content. Now everyone's trying to do it. You know, even, you know, the History Channel and the Food Channel, they're almost in, into original content. The hard part in gaming is still the fact that AAA games, you know, the big blockbusters, the stuff that I spent most of my career working on, 
now costs north of 100, 120 million dollars to make. Yeah. Now there's similar budgets to movies, I suppose. Um, but at least movies until COVID anyway, um, they had a box office release date and, and they made a bunch of money at the box office. And then they go into the airplane and hotel subscription window. Then they go into the HBO window and then down further down to the Hulu window and all these different windows just allowed for more bites of the apple for the content holder. Games are largely, you launch it for 60 bucks and that's it. Yeah. Um, so to take that away, to drop it, what I'm saying is you can put games into a you know, catalog, i.e. old games, into a subscription service and probably have some success with that. I think Sony has with PlayStation Now. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's tough to put new releases in it because you're never going to earn enough across fractions of a subscriber base that'll ladder up to $120 million. That's still pretty far out of, out of reach. Yeah, I, I think I read an article. Uh, I don't know if it was an interview that you did or just an article you wrote talking about the scope of some of these games. And maybe there's a, mm-hmm. a market for a much smaller scope. And I have to say, as someone who's owned every PlayStation up through the PlayStation 4, I'd love to get a 5, but apparently I don't have any more organs to sell. Um, <laughs> as, as someone you know with children and things like that, I, I don't have time necessarily to, to, to commit 60 hours to finishing a game. I would love a game I can finish in, in eight hours or 10 hours, especially if you know it costs 40 or 50 percent the, the cost of the, the bigger game. Well, precisely. Yeah, you're, you're, you're exactly right. I think it's a combination of things. To begin with, look at this way. In PlayStation 1, to make a AAA game against that technology footprint um, and the expectations of time and the fact that we didn't have HDTVs back then either, we were all CRTs, um, it costs you about $6 million. $6 million would be a huge budget yep. for, a, for, for a game. And you'd sell 10 million copies for 60 bucks. Now you make a game that fits the AAA banner and it's, it's called a, a hit, it's a blockbuster. It maybe cost you $120 million to make that game. And you sold 10 million units at 60 bucks. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not a high order of algebra to figure out that you're going to make more money under the old model than yeah. <laughs> under the new yep. model. But that's where the expectation lies. And I think even the fan reaction and the media reaction to games hasn't matured over this period. Yeah. So we still talk about games like, yeah, man, it's got 60 hours of gameplay, man. And, uh, oh, that game, that's, that's, that, that sucks, man. It's only got 20 hours of gameplay. I think even, you know, talking about the length, it's like talking about the length of a movie. Oh, it's only 90 minutes of movie, man. What do you, you want to go see that? <laughs> um, you know, I want The Irishman. I want three and a half hours. Of <laughs> uh, we have to find a new way to talk about games. We have to not talk about the length of the game per se. And we have to stop describing games by their functionality. Oh, that's a shooter. Oh, that's a racing yeah. game. Oh, that's yeah. a fighting game. Totally agree. That's a role-playing game. Let's talk about the content, you know? Let's talk about what, what great experience we have. The games used to only be able to make you scared or make you make your adrenaline rush. Now we can make you cry. We can make you laugh. We can yeah. make you feel the full range of emotions. So the way we describe games to people needs to change. We need to change our language around that. And to your, your, your other point about length, when the average age of gamers were like 19, yeah, 60 hours, sure, I'm unemployed. <laughs> what the hell? I don't want to go to class. But the average age of gamers now is approaching, it's probably over 30. Yep. People aren't aging out of gaming like we used to. You know, you used to go to college, then you get a job, it's like, I don't game anymore. Everyone's gaming. I'm one of those midnight 50-something gamers because at the end of the day, I just needed to, to chill out for yep. a while. 
so we have less time, but we still want to get our game on. And I think that's a conflict there. I, there's a couple of games here that I haven't even, I haven't even opened Red Dead Redemption 2 because I look, I don't have 80 hours yeah. to do yeah. that. I can't even start. So um, I think I think we do need to recalibrate the size of games. Big games are great, but I would prefer like a really tight 15-hour game. Yeah, yeah that, and I, I wonder too if, you know, it, it seems like the gaming industry is following in the footsteps of the uh, the movie industry and the in the when you start hitting home runs all the time or trying mm-hmm. for home runs all the time, you, you miss out on a lot of really interesting stuff and the emergence of genres and, and, you know, kind of niche things that actually could drive a lot of revenue might not take as much investment, you know, the indie film, so to speak. Right. Yeah. Versus tent poles and, you know, the making the same tent pole into a franchise. Yeah. Uh, I don't need another Avengers movie. I'm just going to throw that out there right now. <laughs> well, Ben, Ben, I think his name is Ben Fritz. He's the Wall Street Journal uh, reporter out of Los Angeles. He wrote a book a couple of years ago called The Big Picture. And I recommend that to anyone who's listening. It's a fantastic treatise on, well, on the one hand, it's kind of interesting because he went through the, what, 40,000 pages of leaked Sony Pictures emails <laughs> that were put online. And he sums up some of that. I bet that was more than 60 hours of content, too. <laughs> well, Ben did all the heavy lifting and left us with a wonderful book yeah. uh, as a result of it. But he talks about how Sony Pictures sort of lost touch with the zeitgeist yeah. by still going long on, we'll get Tom and Merrill and they'll be a dysfunctional couple in Portland and <laughs> um, they'll have this wacky tea shop that they're trying to get off the ground. And no one wants to see that movie anymore. And how Hollywood or, or the film industry had become, to your point, Marvel Cinematic Universe yeah. or Sundance. Yeah. And there didn't seem to be any connective tissue between those two. You're either a Sundance film or you're a blockbuster. And... Um, they talk about that, but they talk about also how that center section largely became the world of HBO originals and Netflix originals. Yep. And that kind of picked up that space. Gaming has become the same. You've got the indie stuff and then you have God of War. And the, the center places are gone. I mean, even the publishers who used to inhabit that center space yeah. are gone. Interplay is gone. Uh, Acclaim yeah. is gone. Uh, THQ is gone. Uh, all of these players who had that kind of quirky center and maybe they've all moved to mobile i don't know but that section is gone and i think that's that's sad because what that is just is just fewer voices in the room and to your point justin then we all start just pointing towards the same thing everyone wants to make the next Fortnite. we're all going to chase that where i would prefer to have more diversity and 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 more choices do you, do you think that bi- that bifurcation between mobile gaming and console gaming has accelerated and, and ripped out the middle? Do you think it's just we're we're kind of in a horseshoe shaped market? Uh, I think that's probably a good hypothesis. I think I think I think maybe that's true. I think maybe some of that middle section. Once you start seeing stuff that's completely eye popping, like Destiny or Destiny Two. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe maybe it's maybe it's harder to get your head around the quir- the, the quirky double A game or single A game. Maybe maybe the market says they want it, but the market isn't didn't vote with their dollars. That's why. Yeah, we need a new Parappa the Rapper. Hey, we always <laughs> need a new Parappa the Rapper. We always do. The indie games are really fun, and they stimulate a whole other level of sort of thinking and you know just being. But I, I have to say, having played Fallout and Flight Simulator, it's it's a whole other level of a gaming yeah. experience. So 
I, I think you've got a point. And then you go play Among Us and you're like, I might as well just be texting. <laughs> it's just, I don't even need the <laughs> graphics. Um, I like the humor, but I don't need the graphics. So I, I'm curious, Zynga had a huge quarter. CEO's on the air this morning, CNBC, talking about mm-hmm. how he's storing up for this massive war chest so he can go do some shopping. Mind you, the holidays mm-hmm. are past us, but he's, he's just rearing up for his. So EA acquired Glue. What do you think happens in terms of consolidations and M&A, and not just within games, but just the broader entertainment industry? It seems like it's primed for disruption on multiple levels. I'm just curious what you're seeing going on or what you think should happen. Well, you know, I'm, I'm happy for any studio team that can have a $1.5 billion buyout payday. That's great <laughs> for them, you know. Indeed. Huzzahs all the way around. Um, I think a lot of it was may have been stimulated by the amount of acquisitiveness Microsoft has shown in the sector. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that $7.5 billion purchase of Bethesda, you know, shook a lot of boats. People are also looking at how big, deep pockets like Tencent, the Chinese concern, can go around yeah. and buy 20% stakes in 20 different companies and to place a lot of bets against a whole host of players. There, There's yeah. more talent in the market. Um, I was just reading, uh, yeah, didn't Zynga buy studios like in Istanbul or something? Yeah, two of them. I think they bought Rollick and what's the other ones? Yeah. It begins with a B, I think. I should know this. Yeah. So, you know, these, we would never have thought that there were studios to buy in Istanbul 10 years ago. So <laughs> I didn't know there were today, so. <laughs> right. I was zero years old when I yeah. learned that. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, uh, the other one was Peak so, so, Right. Right, and most of them are players in the mobile and casual space, uh, which is, of course, you know, Zynga's lifeblood. Uh, I, I, th- I think there is a, a sense of FOMO, like mm-hmm. with most of M and A activity, it's about, am I missing something? Should I just may I just buy something? Zero um, percent interest rates certainly help. <laughs> uh, there's a there's a lot of money out there, which is yeah. a lot of money out there chase, chasing investment where. They might have put that money against, you know, Airbnb or WeWork back in the day. They're trying to find different <laughs> ways to put it now. Okay, so Sean, you just got to come clean. When are you going to announce your SPAC? Everybody needs a SPAC. <laughs> it's so funny because I was on a call two nights ago with a gentleman discussing that very thing. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't tell you anymore. I'd have to taxidermy you. Yeah. <laughs> well, I can't. I can't tell you more. But we'll probably be talking about this in. In a couple of weeks or a couple of months, for sure. All right. Okay, moving yeah. on, moving on. So <laughs> extended reality, one of my favorite things, because I think the potential is limitless. Because uh, you don't have enough reality already. Well, you know, and because reality is reality, but we've been used to it for so many years. I mean, why not shake it up and try a whole yeah, different version using, of the world? I've been using this reality for a long time. A new one, it sounds like a good idea. <laughs> it's got yeah, diminishing got returns. Reality, but <laughs> extend my reality. So, I mean, any thoughts on that, though? Do you do you find things in the space that intrigue you? Do you think it's still too early? Do you think it's going to... Bullish or bearish? I am bullish, but over a probably longer time horizon than most people would care to wait. Uh, we got into the virtual reality business three years ago, four years, three years ago with yep. PlayStation VR. And... Um, you know, everybody had the, oh my God, it's got wires on it. And why isn't it wireless? And, you know, how come the headset's so big? And how come the resolution isn't 4K, 4K in both of the eyepieces, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> Why isn't and, it $5,000 a piece? <laughs> yeah. And I had to tell people that uh, um, 
you know, the exciting thing about VR is that whether it's Oculus or whether it's PlayStation or, or whomever, we are sitting at the 1.0 version of this technology. And very rarely do you get a chance to be in a business at 1.0 unless you've yep. created the business yourself. Yep. You know, no one was at the 1.0 for Windows, maybe, or well, I was, but you know, I'm old. I'm, I'm old. <laughs> but most, most normal people have done that. I said, look, look at it this way. There was a time back in the 90s when a Motorola portable phone was the size of a dictionary and it and it you held it up to your ear and your ear got really hot because it was an an you know analog microwave transmission going through your brain. <laughs> and you could you could never look at that phone and then look at an iPhone and draw a line between the two. Yep. Even when the iPhone came out, we all thought, whoa, it's an iPod, but you can make a phone call. Uh, and now it's become the smartphone has become the most ubiquitous piece of technology in the world. So to get to that, which versus that Motorola is probably version 18.0 of cell phone technology. The same thing will be said for VR, AR, XR, whatever the art, you know, yeah. uh, adjective is. Um, and to get to version 5.0 of virtual reality technology, you have to start from 1.0. It's just the rules. No, just to your point, the Quest 2 is so much more improved than, you know, the earlier mm -hmm. version. And yeah, I, I think the thing that emerging tech nascent spaces and startups have in common is this whole uncharted territory. There are no rules, but you have to get in really early. So you know it, yep. you know it, and you don't make the same mistakes that new entrants are going to make later. And we all also, sadly, over the last 20, 30 years, our patience has diminished to zero. Yeah. Like, I want the moon and I want it now. Well, we're goldfish. I mean, just, just <laughs> clued us in. <laughs> Worse than goldfish. <laughs> Works in gold. Keep reminding me. On that T-shirt. So um, yeah, I think it's I think it's fascinating. I, I, I think uh, certainly AR and VR fit into distinct categories. I think yeah. um, AR has certainly you know wide ranging commercial applications that we're already seeing happen. Um, VR VR has to come up against a couple of things. Uh, one is if you have any sense of claustrophobia, you're not going to enjoy that experience. Or social anxiety. Or social anxiety, right. I think the ability for the new headsets to allow you to see through them, mm -hmm. I think will, will help a lot of that. If you can yeah. press a button and actually see what's happening around you in the reality rather than your virtual reality will help remove some of that anxiety. I think they need to have better control schemes. Ideally, do away with the controller. That's another thing we talk about yeah. gaming. You know, One of the problems yeah. in video gaming is that whether it's PlayStation 1 or PlayStation 4, it seems that more or less the entire global market for home consoles is capped at 300 million. It just can't seem to get beyond that when you add it all up. All the Xboxes, all the Playstations, all the Nintendos together, 250, 300 million. And why is that? Why can't it break through that? Why can't it have the ubiquity of a toaster oven? I think part of the reason is the game controller, that piece of plastic with 19 buttons on it. Yeah. Anyone who's played it can do it, but if you haven't played it, it's a really intimidating device a game yeah. controller. So how do we get the game controller out of the way? And I think you can get, that, that's, how, that's why mobile phone games are so, are so engaging and yeah. so mm -hmm. easy to pick up because it's, it's your phone. It's a touch screen. You know that, that logic, that vocabulary. And it's simple. Um, but sitting down in front of a PlayStation controller, if you've never touched, just like see all those magazine ads where the, where the model is holding the controller upside down because if you're not a gamer, you <laughs> would probably do that. <laughs> Horns out. Yeah. <laughs> 
So, so you know, as you're, you're kind of getting into another topic we wanted uh, to touch on is, you know, as you're looking at these trends, you know, what are going to be the most important things, you know, three, five, and 10 years out? As you know, we talked about XR and, and VR and, you know, controllers. Is there anything else like culturally or from a technology standpoint? Uh, I think obviously we have to talk about 5G, um, but what, what do you think are going to be the, the most influencing kind of trends going forward? Well, this is the usual part in the interview where I like to introduce the term foveated rendering. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, feel free. Let's let's get into that. <laughs> it's, it, it's, it, and it's also the name I knew of, of, of my new band, um, <laughs> foveated rendering. Uh, no, but it's, it's technologies like that. Uh, I mean, foveated rendering just means that the, the screen only has to resolve the, the items that you're looking at in the moment. Right. It's really important, like with the VR headsets. That way you can cut down on some of your processing yeah. uh, costs and just, you know, realize the bit that the person's actually looking at, which if you think about it, that's pretty impressive technology that they can do that. It's kind of how the brain works too, right? Like, you know, you just focus on the yep. thing that you want to focus on. Yeah. Correct. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's mimicking that. I think eye tracking technology, which, you know, the, the Air Force has had for years because they have those heads up displays and it follows your eyes and you look at stuff and your, 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 your missiles move. Or, yeah, because then you shoot them. You look at things and then you shoot them. <laughs> if we can get to a place where voice commands don't feel so forced or artificial or weird, um, as, but more people are getting used to talking to their Amazon device or their Google device in their house, that kind of interactivity with gaming would help again, remove some of the barriers for people to get in. And then more natural ways to have camera track a body's movements. So I don't, I don't necessarily have to have a controller for all of my games. Maybe I can just, that's, that's, that's why we became so, so popular in its yeah. time mm-hmm. because it, you swung it like a baseball bat you hit a baseball and you swung it like a tennis racket and hit a tennis. People could understand that. The user interface aspect, the IO bit, that's where a lot of the innovation needs to occur. I think Sony did that with PlayStation 5 with their new haptic triggers yeah. and pressure sensitive buttons, which give a more immersive feeling to it. I think they're on the right track with that. We're going to see a few more iterations over time where it, it gets even more uh, accessible that way. I think those are important trends. You think the body ever becomes the interface? Like we always talk about invisible interfaces, disappearing interfaces, new types of interfaces. But I don't hear a lot of people just say it becomes you. Well, that's the reality reality. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're back at that. Yeah. <laughs> you, you actually open the door, get in the car, and yeah. hold the wheel. Yeah, yeah surely. Um, your body, and then we get down to you know the real sci-fi bit of it is, can you put something on your head, which will just take your neurological yeah. synapses firings yeah. and put that on the screen? Okay, so, so is that 10 years out? 20 years out? Like, how far out do you think that is? Pretty damn far? Uh, I think it's pretty damn far. I think it's pretty damn far because anything around that is not going to be cheap. And, you know, in gaming still being an entertainment, a pastime, you have to uh, you have to make things that are awesome and economical. Yeah, fair point. So, so looking back in time, you know, we're in a pandemic. Not shocker to anyone that doesn't know that we're in a pandemic. You need a new network. <laughs> and you've been going out square dancing. <laughs> Just FYI, there's, there's something going on. It's called coronavirus. Um, so, so if you... That explains why the bar never opens. Yeah. I'm standing here outside the bar. But so, my boots look good. <laughs> so, so if you look back, you know, 10 years ago, 
And, and you're very unique. You didn't bring this up in your story, but you've got some Japanese blood and, you know, you've, you've spoken to so many other audiences around the world and you've been part of so many different cultures around the world in your life so far. And, and you've bridged a lot of them. So if you look back in the last 10 years, last five years, the last three years, what do you mm-hmm. think we could have done better? We as in the developed world, we as in the United States, we as in humanity, define it any way you want. Or, or you, you know, when you look back, you think, hey, this is something I wish I might have done differently. Because we've all had this time for self-reflection while sitting parked at home in our home offices. Um, I'm just curious if you if you've reflected back and said, I wish things had rolled out a little differently in this arena for, for the sake of the world, for the sake of you know, your family, your existence, your cats. Well, and, and if you start weeping, it's going to be an awesome podcast. <laughs> um, I wish Hillary Clinton had won the election in 2016. Um, this is going back to talk about how we have changed through pandemic and more time to think about things. I, I, I believe we were all like the frog in the boiling water, that metaphor, where we got jobs, we got to working, we knew we had to show some gumption and work hard and show our value. And 40 hours a week became 50, became 60, became 70, almost without us realizing it. Yeah. And we started doing things like email at the weekend. And I would do things like fly on a Saturday so I could arrive overseas by Sunday because, you know, America is always behind the ball on the international mm-hmm. day line. Arrive on a Sunday so I could be in the office on Monday morning and stay at this overseas location until Friday, where I'd leave and come back and land Saturday in San Francisco. Or, or even if I land on the same day Friday, you're so wiped out, I'd spend the weekend trying to recover so I could be back in my San Francisco office on Monday morning. And look at that two weekends that weren't mine, two weekends where I was completely ineffective. Either I was traveling on one of them or I was recovering on the other one. And I think we all. When we come back to a regular working style, we want to take a look at that. Do we want to go back to 70-hour work weeks? I don't think so. I, I don't think so. I agree. I wish we'd come to that realization earlier. I wish I had. I mean, I do. I miss the solitude of being in transit and being in flights, but I do not miss the cost of the jet lag. Like for the, especially the back-to-back multiple trips in a week, it's... Mm-hmm. You know, I think I sleep so much better having not been on a plane, although I don't think I've ever gone more than a month in my life without flying since I was six months old. So this is weird. Mm-hmm. And I do really mm-hmm. miss the solitude, but it, you feel so much healthier, <laughs> you know, when you're not yeah. changing altitude. Yeah, it is healthier. It's yeah. 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 Because it is. And we look back at all, the, I look back at all the traveling. I was at a point in my life where I was traveling three weeks every month. Wow. And I look back at it now and realize that those weren't all necessary trips. Those weren't all mission critical. Yep. Those weren't all going and stopping a fire or starting one, depending on which was asked of me. Mm-hmm. It just ran into, well, you know, it's been four months since I saw that studio. I better drop by and see what's going yeah. on. And, yeah. oh, it's the monthly headquarter meeting. I better fly out to that. I'm hoping that when we come back from pandemic that – and this is this is a weird weird thing to, to wish for. I hope all the chief financial officers at companies are going. Are, they've been so thrilled in the year of COVID <laughs> that the travel and entertainment expenses have gone down to zero for most all corporations, yeah. which you know accrues to profitability. That when the teams come back, that they're not going to be saying, "All right, you guys, um, there's a sales convention in 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 Marseille, France. Let's fly nine people over there and realize that well, we didn't go to that sales convention last year." And our profits were up. Yeah. So 
let's not go this year too. And just naturally by the force of cost control to make people not fly all over the world all the time, every time, and um, give people back a more balanced life, either with themselves or with their families. You know, to that end, I'm sort of surprised by the fact that customer sales interactions have changed as we ported it over into the video conferencing, video collaboration world of connecting mm-hmm. with, your, with your user or your customer. But so many internal meeting formats have not changed. They've just ported over yeah. to Zoom and the all hands meeting is still the same like format. And I, I just keep thinking that's okay. So you've taken what is already a pretty flat experience and now put it into a 2D world. And is this supposed to be engaging? Like, really? Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I think, though, I hear from other people that some companies, you know, the, the, the CEO is putting out a weekly newsletter to keep it real or something like that. And, and I've heard some other companies saying, do all of your business, your Zooming and your conferencing, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And everyone gets Monday, Friday to, you know, do their office work, which is kind of nudge, nudge, wink, 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 or yes. go outside and take a walk. You know, but just give me three good days a week and, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll forgive you the rest. Yeah, but I also think this disconnected world has downsides. Um, you know, those are obvious. But in other ways, too, I think this year has really changed the whole idea of office politics. Mm, yeah, we've mentioned this before. Yeah. I mean, all of us in our business life have been in a situation where we've been in a meeting or been in a room and there's somebody in the room and you go, what is it he does anyway, that guy? And you ask, ask that person's boss, what is it that guy? Oh, he's great. No, he's, he's a mood maker. You know, he's always here. He's, he's always good with the teams. He's good with the guy. Yeah, but what does he do? Oh, yeah, well, I like to have him around. You know, he's, he's just a good guy to have around. Um, but in the world of Zoom, that mood maker person doesn't have a role to play anymore. And I think, you know, you're starting to look for actual results and output. So it's difficult for that person. You know, that's that person that always bumps into the CEO in the elevator and always bumps into the senior vice president in the lunch line at the cafeteria. All those touch points are gone now. So I think it's harder for office politics for those types of people. But in a, in a more negative sense, I think it's also difficult under the current situation to really help young people get a leg up. Yeah. You know, bring them into, hey, have you, have you ever seen a budget meeting before? Here, you come with me and just sit in the back and watch how this happens. There isn't a way to do that so easily now. It's, it's harder, I think, for diversity to be recognized. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because in this world of Zoom, you end up probably just spending more time with your own cohort rather than broadening it out to other people. Um, there's no drinks after work, per se. Yeah. There's no bumping into people in the lunchroom. I used to, when I was the CEO, I used to go to the lunchroom, the cafeteria, and take my tray and just sit at a table. And go, hey guys, can I sit here? Oh, yeah, Mr. Layton, sure, come on. Just to interact and see other people and find out what the different problems were. And, and terrorize them just a little bit. <laughs> just a little. Uh, some of them, yeah, yeah. The, the guilty ones were terrorized. Sure, yes, of course sure. They were. <laughs> Good job. You do lose the serendipity. That's totally true. True. Okay, so, so on that note, um, we're going to get into our game, which Justin has played with many people before, and it's just hilarious to see some of the results and also really thought-provoking. But before we do that, I'm going to warm you up. So I'm rubbing my hands together, getting very excited. All right, here I go. Oh, okay. So I'm going to give you a content mashup just as a start before we transition into talking about industries and companies and brands. So if you could smash two video games together, what would they be and why? Parappa Resident Evil. That was unexpected. Okay. Tell us more. I like it. Intrepid Parappa 
goes into this haunted house looking for his onion sensei to teach him some new raps and two bloodthirsty hounds of hell crash through the window and chase little Parappa up the staircase. And at the whole time you have this great Matsuya Matsuda soundtrack cranking in the background. Does it say, does he have to freestyle then really to get his? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Then you got to freestyle up the, up, <laughs> up the staircase. Yeah. Hit the buttons. Yeah. <laughs> I hope there's a creative out there listening to this right now. Like that, that was your golden nugget for this podcast. That's it. That's where it's at. Okay. Are we ready to play? Let's do it. So the idea is if you're in a market, one way to come up with new uh, ideas is to think, well, how would this non-adjacent brand, what would they do in this market? So I'm going to throw some out at you and and see if okay. maybe it sparks some idea. Okay, so what would Whole Foods do in the auto industry? Uh, Whole Foods, we used to call them Whole Paycheck because you get a bag of groceries <laughs> mm-hmm. and it would cost you $135. Um, what would Whole Foods do in the automobile industry? I think, I, I guess the upholstery would be made from hemp, obviously. <laughs> Uh, it would have a hemp upholstery. It would have a super large trunk, um, so you could put all of your, all of your, your, your shopping in there. And um, I guess it would have a radio that only tuned to Amazon Music. <laughs> <laughs> it, it runs on on biofuel. Oh, biofuel. There, there's our siren. That's now. our soundtrack. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, that's my neighborhood. That's my ride. Okay, gotta go. Uh, <laughs> It would run on cooking, used cooking oil. Yes. Yeah, waste, the byproduct. Or or human power like a Flintstones car, maybe. (laughs) Yeah, that's a tough one. Whole Foods and automobiles, yeah. (laughs) What about uh, IBM Watson getting into the home exercise equipment market? Well, that'd be super overpriced. And um, I think, you know, you have your Peloton, you have your mirror. There's this new thing called Tonal. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've seen that. Yeah. If you bought an IBM Watson, I guess what it would try to do, it would try to teach you things while you're working out. Like you'd be you'd be working out, you'd be lifting, you'd be doing your downward dog or whatever it's asking you to do, and and then it'd be coming out with quotes from Voltaire and Flaubert, and end up <laughs> having to complete the quote or else you couldn't. They did keep making you do squats until you did. It would be a, I think an exercise for the brain and for the body. Say, if think about really intelligent, it would know I would just want a Manhattan. <laughs> Well, you have to work for it. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. I'm going to predict when I'm about to quit and harass me to no end. That's that's what it would be. It would be evil. It would be like, you know, that goth teenage instructor that's your trainer. That never really happens, <laughs> but it's terrifying. Yeah, I don't see myself getting one. That's for sure. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to go off script here. What about Robin Hood in the management consulting business? What would they do? <laughs> Somebody's going to jail. That's all I know. Take the money and run. I think it's It's a very short deck that they turn over after their engagement. Exactly. Uh, Wow. But the whole idea of Robin Hood, it's it's incredible because they they have gamified that platform. Yeah. And and that's that's what really makes it just a little bit um, 
insidious is not the right word, but it's irresponsible. It's not the wrong word either. Be very interesting, you know, where this line is going to be drawn uh, on the other side of this. This uh, speaking of GameStop, right on the other side of this stock gambit. You know, I'd be very curious to see what where the First Amendment free speech on a bulletin board um, runs up against, you know, SEC uh, rule. Yeah, I mean, it, it was interesting, you know, following that case to see that uh, some of these short sellers were were also routinely putting on YouTube videos of their explanation of why they're shorting a stock, putting it out there, and you know, this is why we're shorting it, this is how it is, I guess, to get customers or to get investors or what have yeah. you. So doing it on a Reddit forum isn't, largely dissimilar from that yeah um and it's all freely available information there's no you know non-public information involved in that it's a it's a really good question but it's it's interesting that people only got worried about it once a bunch of youngsters found out how to do it (laughs) i actually i think the regulators are, are probably going to give the retail investors a pass on this because they expect the professionals to know what's in the bounds, right? And what's out of bounds. And I think the expectation now is, wow, they need a program for retail investors. Like they've never thought about how to educate the retail investor about what's allowed and what's not allowed. A lot of people don't even know Mm -hmm. what constitutes collusion, right? Or signaling. And they work in industry. It shocks me at times. Um, So yeah, Mm -hmm. it's it's fascinating times. I mean, I think the regulators are going to have to take a long, hard look at what's required to move forward. Because these platforms are here to stay and they are powerful tools. I guess the question you're asking, Justin, is this crowdsourced pump and dump or not? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, but because it's crowdsourced, is that, it's <laughs> like super public. Yeah. Right? It's not happening in a dark room somewhere. It's right out there on the internet. So, yeah, I wouldn't know. That's why I keep my money in US savings. <laughs> <laughs> we may have exhausted the brand theft auto for the day. So. <laughs> I'll throw a half one out. Uh, if If you could breathe, like, a younger sort of life into a Harley Davidson, what would you mash it with? Cause it's got a very specific corporate culture, very specific target mm-hmm. segment and it's iconic, right? I mean, it's an iconic brand. And I sometimes think set of brands and I sometimes think what's their next play. Well, I guess I've got to get into electronic motorcycles. Do they do that already? They, 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 they do. Yet? They do. Yeah. And okay. they're doing electric bicycles too, which are based on their first Harley Davidson motorcycle. Yeah, I think that's a natural for them. I don't think that there's an automotive play for them. I don't think there's a fast food play for them. I mean, they've tried the fashion thing. There's some Harley Davidson fashion shops. Yeah, I've been to one. But Interesting. It's so funny because it's a, they're in the kind of malls that Harley Davidson owners don't go to. So yeah, we're in the airport. It's a strange. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's such a strange disconnect, <laughs> right? You guys should be out on Route 66. You sell more merch there. Or Yeah, um, if they do get into food, it'll be like loose meat sandwiches and... and uh, <laughs> Hot dish. <laughs> so nothing plant-based. Well, no, nothing plant-based and all wrapped in wax paper. Remember when sandwiches used to be wrapped oh, in wax yeah. paper? Oh, yeah. Kept the mustard off your brown striped tie. Yes, exactly. That's Maybe that's it. Yeah, they should get into some sort of food play. Um, bring back that old nostalgic wax-wrapped sandwiches and um, really, really thick glasses of buttermilk. when We used to drink buttermilk. <laughs> It won't be any worse than the food they serve at Starbucks. That's true. It's kind of like that biker bar in Chicago, Justin. Do you remember the name? Twisted Spoke. Rooftop. That's it. Yes. Yep. That's that's exactly what they should do. Yeah, it's delicious. There's not a cardiologist in the world who wants me to eat there, but it's delicious. It is delicious. <laughs> and it's open late and it's perfect after a show. It's it's the best. 
Um, I miss it. The Bay Area doesn't have an equivalent, really. So, okay, all right. Um, I'm gonna. Oh, you haven't, you've, you've, you've not been to Tommy's joint. No, where's that? On Geary and Van Ness. Oh, up in the city? No, I need to spend more time up there. After the pandemic. Tommy's joint is, gonna... is a classic institution. All right, I'm going around town with you after, you know, after this whole corona thing has passed us or vaccines are in us. We're coming and hanging out. Yeah, definitely. Let's check do the city it. out. Okay, so I am just curious. You've dealt with so many stories of mythical creatures, other worlds, companies that have come and gone and died. What is your favorite origin story, fictional or not, of all time? It can be yours. Favorite origin? Uh, no, I can't. I can't be the star of my own story. Um, my favorite origin story. Wow. I mean, there's so many. Um, I mean, I'll just take. The one I know, I know the best, which is the, uh, you know, the Akio Morita Sony Corporation origin yeah. story. Just these two guys, Akio Morita and Masaru Ibuka, you know, they survived the war. They were both in the Navy. They come out of it. They decide to create a new technology business. And in a burned out department store in the Gotanda section of Tokyo, they started business as something at the time was called Tokyo Tsushin Kogyo. Thank God they changed <laughs> the name. Uh, and they made a rice cooker, which wasn't very good. <laughs> and then they made a heating pad, which didn't really work. And then they made a tape recorder. And to read the stories about how they made a reel-to-reel tape recorder, how they would melt iron particles down and paint them onto paper tape with a brush in order to hold the magnetic recording. Oh, wow. that's uh, awesome. Wow. And then sold these whole, they were, they, and they were huge machines. They were the size of like a convection oven. And they would then, they then sold them into the government for language learning. And that was their first spark. And they made their, made their first nut on that. And then they decided to get into the transistor radio business after seeing that um, some bright sparks of the University of Illinois Champaign-Urbana you know, developed the transistor. They found a way to get it into a radio. And their business took off. And that's the famous story of, you know, Akio Morita was more of the marketing salesperson of the couple. And uh, Ibuka-san was, the, was mm-hmm. the engineer guy. And they wanted to make a pocket radio. So they made this transistor radio and it didn't fit in the pocket. So the, the ultimate uh, uh, marketer that Morita-san was, he had new shirts made with bigger pockets. <laughs> <laughs> All of his salesmen had these shirts with the little bit bigger pocket with the, foot, with the radio fit into and it became the pocket radio based on that. Um, so many innovations in yeah. technology and then in marketing yeah. and then making these things real for people and then bringing people products they didn't even know they wanted. Mortison was kind of like Steve Jobs in the way that he said that I don't believe in market yep. research because you can't ask people what they want if they don't know what's possible. Mm-hmm. People don't know what's possible, yep. we do, because yeah. we're the engineers. So market research is used. Market research wouldn't have got you the Walkman. And in 1979, when that came out, that just changed the world of music as we knew it. The whole idea of personal audio was born. And it wasn't new technology. It was just a new configuration. We've always had headphones. We always had handheld players. Bring them together. Oh, my God. So that was boring. And you can go further and see things like Betamax, and tape, you know, video recorders, and, and development of the compact disc, and the mini disc, and the DVD, and 8-millimeter video, all this stuff. I think the Sony origin stories begins, goes through, and continues as an innovation yep. story, which is why I could spend 32 years there and not be bored for a minute. It's amazing. It is, but I'm glad to have you back stateside. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be back stateside. 
Um, but like you, Anju, it's weird. I haven't been in an airplane in 12 months. Uh, and by virtue of that, I haven't been in Japan in 12 months. It's the first time I've been out of Japan for this long since I was 18 years old. That's why I had to play Flight Simulator last weekend. I just, I needed to get up there. <laughs> I, I buzzed Manhattan. Just needed to happen. <laughs> yeah, I, I do kind of Flight Simulator by reclining in my chair here and drinking my scotch. Ooh, what scotch? I'm on an Irish whiskey jag right now. I'm trying a new brand called Writer's Tears. I don't know that one. I- I have seen it. I have not had it. It's good. It's good. It's a it's a new it's a newish distillery. I think it's only about twenty years old, uh, and it's not part of the conglomerate, which is Jameson, yep. Bushmills, right. and all that kind of stuff. Um, they use single grain uh, ingredients in here, and they age them in used American bourbon barrels. Sold. So it has a real kind of creamy, sort of warm and and just lovely back end to it. So I think Anju's right. You and I'll get along just fine. (laughs) (laughs) Anju's right about most things. Uh, Only when it comes to the two of you. (laughs) I I feel like you, when we chat, you have these ideas that really bleed bleed from one space to another, right? In terms of things that you've noticed in one area that you think should impact another. So if you could build mm-hmm. up an industry or completely change one, so forget about the company for a second, what would you focus on right mm-hmm. now? What do you think matters? Or what are you interested uh, in? I think, you know, I spend quite a, not an insignificant amount of my time uh, working with groups that are trying to make um, networking easier for, for women in, in engineering mm-hmm. and women in computer sciences. Um, I help out with uh, a group called Girls Make Games and trying to bring computer game design to a, a younger female oh, cohort. Awesome. I mean, Girls Make Games are between nine and 16 years old and uh, they go to, they sponsor boot camps during the summertime where they bring teams together and they make a prototype in 30 days and we can see what's happening with their, with their programs. I think we were talking about earlier about there seems to be this cap of 300 million game consoles you can sell around the world at any, at any given moment. And I think part of that capping is as a result of not enough diversity in the content creation mm-hmm. pipe. It's still a lot of the same people doing a lot of the same things in the same way they've always done it. And we need to come up with ways to bring a wider array of designers and creators and dreamers into interactive entertainment. Yeah full stop. And I think that's the only way that we're going to grow the business. So, you know, on the one hand, it's the right thing to do and it's the human thing to do and it's the proper thing to do. But on the other hand, it's also the right business thing to do <laughs> because more people in it, more people buying it. There you go. You know, it all, it's a, it's a virtuous, uh, virtuous circle. So um, these are things that are important to me. And these are things that, you know, I would like to uh, in the, in the twilight of my career, uh, do what I can to, um, to promote those sorts of outcomes and values. I think, I think that's an important thing. That's it's, it's certainly, it's certainly important to me. And, um, yep. And if listeners wanted to get involved, what should they do? If listeners want to get involved, I think, I think they need to take that kind of a thought I have around the video game industry and, and just reflect on their own life and where they are and how can you, I mean, I, I believe in the golden rule, you know, do unto others as you have them do unto you. I also believe that I am my brother's keeper. 
And that to be a member of society means to be connected to one another, to be, to be mindful of the interactions that you have on a daily basis. And what can you do to help someone out, pay it forward, do something, um, do something meaningful and helpful to other people. And even if that's just working on yourself and getting into a more mindful place about who you are and, and what, what you want to be and to be intentional about the things you do and make these changes happen. Don't let the world just happen to you in the overall, that's just got to create a greater aggregate of, you know, good jaws and good karma out in the world. That can't be a bad thing. I know it sounds very San Francisco hippy dippy, but it's kind of where I come at it from. It's uh, we talk about you know, the collision of worlds, like we talked about before, Anju, is I see gaming, music, and television and film as kind of a Venn diagram of these three circles. And there's some stuff in the center which, which contains attributes of all three. But I see those three circles becoming one concentric mm-hmm. circle because in the end, it's all about the content. And then it's about how you engage with it or how you yeah. express it. It's... It's all intellectual property. And then and in this angle of it, it's more musical. In this angle of it, it's more gamey. But it's all from the same spot. And I think the industry realizes that. I think a lot more integration is occurring between film and gaming, for sure. And music has always been a big part of gaming since, since the days of Donkey Kong. So uh, that's a trend I see happening in the entertainment industry. I think it will accelerate uh, over time. And I think that's also a good way to bring more voices into the room. I mean, you talked about Parappa earlier. That was one of the first games that came out of a Japanese musician's mind, uh, Masaya Matsura. He is a professional Japanese musician, and he just had this game idea, and he wanted to bring it out. And that's how we got rhythm action gaming, a genre which didn't even exist before Parappa. And now it reveals itself in so many different ways. So that's what it's like bringing in new blood, new minds, new consciousness into the gaming world. We just need to do more of that. Well, that's beautiful. I'm not sure we can, I mean, you know, there's nothing, no. nothing more can be said after no. that. <laughs> Kumbaya. Thank you. That was, um, it was awesome. First of all, spending time with you. I wish we were in the same room, having drinks, chilling out. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to try some writer's tears right now. Uh, usually I'm just chatting them. <laughs> well, yes. I felt common cause. And, and I hope I can get you guys together in, in one city at some point too. That would be super fun. Yeah. What city are you in, Justin? Chicago. Oh, that's the Chicago reference. Okay. Yeah, I went to Notre Dame, right. so I'm not unfamiliar. Well, I've, I've done I have a lot of work in the uh, Mishawaka and South Bend area. So. And on the banks of the mighty St. Joe. Indeed. No, but this was super fun. Thank you, as usual. Um, it was great fun, you guys. It's, it's so good to meet you, nice Justin. Nice to meet you. I hope to, uh, to catch up with you and all the other Jays in your house. <laughs> well, it's hard to catch uh, up with all of them at the same time. I'll tell you that right now. Thanks for listening to Transpose. If you like this podcast, please leave us a review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, don't forget to switch it up a little.